Maybe a miracle we're all still here. Is it the end of the world as we know it? That there are more cataclysmic, unforeseeable events? That this is only going to get worse. Tensions are rising across the country over vaccine mandates. We're going to have to operate in a world order where power is shared amongst many states, including many that are authoritarian. We are in a whole new world now. Let's be blunt about it. There will be individuals in regional New South Wales who choose not to be vaccinated, who will lose their freedom. Global powers trying to rearrange themselves into a new global world order. Who will lead the post-pandemic world? There are those in the world who want to have this great international reset. The idea that you will own nothing, you will be happy. New York City putting 9,000 unvaccinated city workers on unpaid leave. Well, just one day left until Judgment Day. The Vikings predicted tomorrow will be the end of the world, and if you know it. Are you glad you're here today? Yes. World's changing fast, isn't it? Yeah, things, things happen locally. Oh, by the way, we have some good football teams around here, and Clyde actually won their uh, second playoff game, so congratulations to them. Yeah, we appreciate that. That's, that's good stuff. And as we're, we're looking around the world, we see change is happening so fast, and then the world is coming together. I mean, it's more connected than it's ever been. And then we realize when it comes to news and information that there's certain groups of people that have the potential to control that information, kind of what we think about, maybe even how we think about it, how it's, how it's presented or even what, what appears in the news. All these things are happening, which adds to changing our world and changing the way we look at things, changing the way we look at morality and just all kinds of things. And really, what we're thinking about is you know, does, do all these changes connect with what the Bible says will happen in the end times? As we see all this, does this have anything to do with that? And really the answer to that is yes. As we see all these things happening, we realize that things that were in prophecy that were hard for us to understand how it could happen now we understand easily how that can happen the way our world is today, the way our world has changed today. So biblical prophecy is more aligned with what we see in our world today than it's ever been before. And so that brings us to, well, what's going to happen next? And the next prophetic event that's going to happen is what we're going to talk about today. And before we get there, that's out of Thessalonians 4, but before we get there, I want to set the context. First of all, the context for the first century. Remember that prophecy was written in the, what they had in the first century was the Old Testament, where Old Testament prophets were writing that a Messiah would come. And most of this writing happened during a time when outside nations were dominating Israel, just like that was, it was just like it was in the first century when Rome was dominating Israel. So they went hundreds of years, different nations dominating them, and their prophets said, hey, a Messiah is coming. A Messiah is coming. But what the prophets did not see very clearly was that the Messiah would come twice, his first coming and his second coming. So Jesus came in the first century. 
But everybody expected that that would be it, that there wouldn't be a second coming. There would just be one, one coming of the Messiah. And that's why when the prophets wrote down prophecies, they, sa- they sounded like they contradicted each other a little bit. For example, they said Jesus would come as a, a lamb, but then they said Jesus would come as a lion. They said Jesus would come to heal the brokenhearted, but then they said Jesus would come and he would proclaim God's vengeance. They said he would come and be crushed, but then they also said he'd come and destroy all of Israel's enemies. They said he would come as a servant, but then they also said he had come as a king who would rule with a rod of iron. And because of all these prophecies, They're really talking about two different comings of Christ, but they didn't really see that very easily. That caused a lot of confusion. And because they were continually dominated by outside world powers, they gravitated to the second half of that list. They gravitated to the king who would come and destroy their enemies and rule with a rod of iron. That's what they were expecting, a political leader that would lead them the Messiah, and that's what they were expecting during the time of Christ. Now, Daniel, one of the prophets, said he's the one that predicted exactly when Jesus would come. Not how he would come or where he'd be born, but when he would come. And he did that uh, by pronouncing that there's going to be these 70 seven-year periods. And you could count that down because he said when 69 of them pass, the Messiah is going to show up. And you could count that down because he said, start counting at the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And you can count that down to the year that Jesus entered Jerusalem at the end of his earthly ministry when everybody was proclaiming, Messiah, son of David, has come. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And, they were, and we call that Palm Sunday. They were throwing down palm branches. He was riding in on the colt of a donkey. And all this, that year was the year that Daniel had predicted hundreds of years before that the Messiah would show up. And he did. But what everybody failed to understand were that there would be two comings, a servant and a ruler, a lamb and a lion. And that's why his disciples had a really difficult time getting this whole thing when he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to be killed. And they're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. You're going to rule. You're going to reign. You know, that's not the plan. What's going on? And so finally, he gathers his disciples that last week of his life. He gathers his disciples in the upper room and they have the last supper. And then one of the things he told them up there was that he was talking about leaving soon. That caused them great distress. And then here's what he says in John 14, beginning in verse 1. He's speaking about he's leaving. They don't like it. They're troubled. Here's what he says. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, we've heard this before, a lot of us who are believers, that last phrase where he says, I will come again and receive you to myself. 
What does that mean? I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Well, we're going to find out exactly what Jesus meant by that. So that places this passage we're going to look at in history. But then I, but we're going to look at a paragraph in 1 Thessalonians. And I want to give you the history of that book. So now Jesus has come. He was killed right after that upper room experience, arrested, put to death. Three days later, he rose again. He hung around for about 40 days teaching people. And then his disciples watched him ascend back into heaven. And so that began something called the church age. The church was born. Churches started spreading around. Uh, Paul becomes converted. Paul then takes some, uh, Goes, takes his ministry as an evangelist, a missionary on the road. He's in Asia. He crosses over into Europe, first uh, to Philippi, but then later to Thessalonica. He's only there a few weeks. There were no Christians when he came. He goes into the synagogue. We're told in Acts 17 that some people start believing some, some of the Jewish people that were part of the synagogue believed, a bunch of Gentiles believed, and it's also noted that some prominent women in the city believed. So these people start believing, but after they start believing, persecution breaks out. And so persecution happens where the city turns on these new Christians and starts beating them, ostracizing them, and killing them. The church, this new church, is alarmed that Paul will get caught up in this, so they secretly get him out of there. But Paul leaves not knowing what's going to happen to this brand new church filled with brand new believers in Thessalonica. A few cities later, he ends up in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he ends up in Corinth, where he wrote, yeah, he's just not 1 Corinthians, Corinth. We're going to get there in a minute, but ends up in Corinth. And then he's wanting to know what happened to those people in Thessalonica. So he sends Timothy to go check on them. They don't know if they've been wiped out. They don't know if they've left the faith. They don't know what, what has happened. Well, Timothy gets there and he finds out that the church has stood tough even in persecution. And so, wow, they did it. Now, Timothy then returns back to Paul in Corinth, and he says, hey, they're hanging in there, but they have one big question. And the question concerns what you taught them the few weeks they were there, you taught them that Jesus was coming back, his second coming, and that how that was gonna happen, but their question was, a bunch of us here that have been standing strong for the faith have died. And Maybe some have been killed because of the persecution. And they're like, here we've been waiting for the second coming of Jesus. These people have sweated with us. They've bled with us. They've stood with us. And now they're gone. They've died. And now they're going to miss it. What happens to them? We understand what happens to us. What happens to them? What's going on? That's the question that they ask. In response to this, Paul teaches them about the first phase of the second coming. We find out in Paul's teaching that Christ came the first time, was killed, buried, resurrected, ascended to heaven, that he's coming again. That's the second coming. But his second coming actually happens in two phases. Paul's describing that. 
He's teaching that to the Thessalonians. The first phase of his second coming is that Jesus just comes in the air and then he calls his saints, all believers in the world, up to meet him in the clouds of the air and they go back to heaven. That's where Jesus was saying, I'm preparing a place for you and I will come and get you and take you to that place. That's what he's talking about. And so these Thessalonians seem to know that, but their question is, wow, well, these people who stood with us, they've died. What's going to happen to them? So he's going to answer that question. But again, he's taught them the first part of his second coming. He's just coming to, doesn't even come to earth. He just comes in the clouds and takes his church, all true believers out. And then later, we believe seven years later, he actually comes back to earth and steps down on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. There's a great earthquake and all kinds of things happen when that happens, but we're not there yet. So here's what then he writes to describe to them. And the event of them taking people out is called the rapture. Now the word rapture is not in the Bible, but there's a phrase in Greek that we translate caught up. And the word rapture is simply the Latin translation of the phrase caught up, rapturo. And so that's, it's just the Latin word for this phrase. Okay, so are you ready to read about this event? All right. I actually memorized this when I was a teenager before I ever thought I'd ever be a pastor because this is the next thing. Okay, here it is. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 13. But we, so he's writing the Thessalonians, some of their people have died. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That's a euphemism for death. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then this is it. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, that's the rapturo, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So now he's teaching them exactly how the first phase of his second coming is going to happen, specifically the rapture. And it's all about comforting them. Why? Because when we lose somebody, it's difficult. It's hard. And that happens in a church our size. You know, that happens almost every week, it seems like. Uh, just, just this week, for example, Kathy McAllister passed away. Emil Sellier passed away. Actually, David is right back there. Uh, um, Emil Sellier passed away. Before that, it was Ty Daniels and Bill Burkett. And uh, people passed away. People that we love. Chris Black passed away. Who loved prophecy. Loved this passage. They pass and then we're grieved. We've lost them. People who stood with us. People in church with us. Fellow believers who are also waiting for the return of Christ. Christ. 
And then it's like, and the feeling among the Thessalonians was they were sure they thought that Jesus was going to come while they were living. And then, oh, some of these people are going to miss it. What's going to happen? And so Paul gives us this teaching. No, they're not going to miss anything. Now, when we teach about this, what basically what he's telling us is that, hey, the living at the rapture will not precede the dead. And he's telling us, hey, they're not going to miss his return. So we can be comforted by that. So on the day of this future thing called the rapture, millions of people who are living on earth will disappear in a blink. Everyone who's put their faith in Jesus, not everybody who says they're a Christian, but everybody who's actually put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, true Christians, will be caught up in the blink of an eye to be with God. But when we talk about this, a lot of times people get confused about death today. Actually, I often talk about this passage at the graveside portion of a funeral, if I do that, because this all connects together to me to explain this. So what happens when, when a Christian dies? Well, we know from Scripture that when a believer dies, immediately their spirit or their soul goes up to heaven and is with God in God's presence. But we also know that their body is left behind. And so that body then is either cremated or, or buried or, you know, put to rest. And then there's a future time where God's saying that he will glorify our bodies. And so what, what's a glorified body? Well, Jesus, after the resurrection, had a body. He could eat. He could be seen. He could interact with people. That's a glorified body. That we'll have a glorified body, something like that. If we're alive and remain, we'll be caught up and our bodies are glorified in that process if somebody has died before that, their spirit, their souls, who they really are, their consciousness is in heaven. But then at that moment, their bodies are resurrected and rejoined as a, with their soul. For us who are living, it's explained, well, so we have this saying, absent from the body, present from the Lord. We get that from 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So the people that we know that have passed away who are believers, it's only for believers, we know, hey, they are with God, in God's presence right now, this morning, today. But their body was left on the ground. Well, this alarms some people because they'll say, whoa, wait, wait a minute here. We cremated Uncle Fred. And then we scattered his ashes at sea. You know, and as those went down, I saw a little fish. You know, get him. And then some bigger fish. You got them, you know. And oh no, what's going to happen to Uncle Fred? Well, we know the God who created the universe and our world and life can bring back the molecular structure of Fred and put him back together and glorify his body. That's nothing for God. That's what's going to happen. So what happens to the bodies of living believers? So let's look at that a little detail. That's described for us in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. It says, behold, so we who are here at the rapture, behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, 
but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Okay, we got that. And we, that's we who are alive and remain, we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. That's what he's talking about. Now, he starts that off talking about, hey, this is a mystery. When, this, when, when the word mystery shows up in the New Testament, it usually signifies something that was not taught in the Old Testament. So this is a mystery. We've not heard this before. This is some new stuff that God is teaching us, a mystery. And so then the question is, okay, if this is the next thing that's going to happen, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? And there are actually different views of when this next event called the rapture happens. And all the views are based, are all centered around a time period in the future called the seven years of tribulation. To get that seven years of tribulation, again, back to one of the Old Testament prophets, Daniel, and I don't want to get into this because, you know, it'll lose some of you. And some of you are like, yeah, yeah, we got it. So, you know, he said there are going to be 70 weeks. Week in Hebrew is just seven. So there's 70 sevens. We figured out that those 70 sevens, 77 year periods. He said there'd be 62, seven, and one. And so after 69 that ran concurrently, that's how from the building of the wall in Jerusalem, that's how we could know that when Jesus came, the Messiah showed up and he showed up, entered the Eastern gate, that happened. But what happened, there was the 70th week has never happened yet. And that's a seven year period of time. We refer to that as the seven years of tribulation or some people call it the day of the Lord. So this is future. Now, when the rapture happens, the different views, they're all hinged on when does it happen in relation to this seven-year period. So the first view is called the pre-tribulational rapture. It's the before the seven years rapture. So if you're looking at a timeline, and I know some of you might hate timelines or graphs, don't look. Just keep looking at me. It's okay. Yeah, but, but for some of you, this helps to map this out. So that's, this is how it's, it is. There's the Old Testament age. Then Jesus came. That's on the left. And he died, resurrected, ascended into heaven. That began a church age that had nothing to do with Israel. And therefore, the prophets were not talking about that at all. They were only concerned with Israel and the Messiah and how the Messiah connected to Israel. So a pre-trib rapture means that we are raptured out before the seven-year tribulation begins. There's another view about the timing of the rapture called the mid-trib rapture, meaning that the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation time. There's another, a little more obscure view called the pre-wrath rapture, and that happens during the second half sometime the second three and a half years, the second half of that seven year period. And that happens there because it's in the second half that things get worse. And that's when God's wrath 
the Bible tells us, is poured out on earth. So they're saying, well, believers go through a lot of the tribulation, but they miss God's wrath. So that's called the pre-wrath. That's not a very popular view, but it's probably the second best view. And then there's post-trib, which means at the end, Jesus comes. When he actually comes to the Mount of Olives, before he gets here, he calls the church up, but then they just do a U-turn and come right back down. The problem with that is in John 14, he said, I will come and get you and take you to where I am. And so you'll always be with, he's talking about preparing a place in heaven. So that doesn't really fit there. So those are the four views of when the rapture happens. And the only, it's all the same thing. It's just when. So now if there are different views about the rapture, then I want to share with you five biblical reasons that we believe it's a pre-tribulational rapture. And by the way, when I say that, the rapture is a signless event. Nothing has to come true. We don't have to see anything in our world happen before the rapture happens. The rapture can happen in any moment. It could have happened in the first century. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen before I'm done with this message. The rapture doesn't require any signs. Now, there's a bunch of stuff that happened in the tribulation time. Those are signs, and we'll look at that, and we'll get to that. But the rapture, nothing has to happen. So here's the deal. Five reasons a pre-tribulational rapture fits best. Number one, the Bible teaches this imminent return that Jesus could come at any time. The pre-tribulational rapture is the only one that fits that biblical teaching. Because if Jesus came at any other time... We, would, we know Daniel tells us the tribulation starts when a world leader, which we'll be talking about, signs a peace covenant with the nation of Israel, which we'll be talking about. And so that starts the tribulation time. Well, if you know that started, then you could count down exactly to the day of the mid-trib, and you could count down exactly to the day to the post-trib, and you could count down pretty close, maybe to the week or so, of the pre-wrath. Only pre-trib fits the criteria that nothing has to happen before the rapture. For example, even if it was pre-wrath, well, there would have to be an antichrist before the rapture happens. Only pre-trib, you don't have to have anything. Second reason, it's the view that best fits comforting believers. You know, here he's saying, hey, don't worry, be comforted. Don't grieve like other people about your... You know, we grieve, but we, we don't grieve hopelessly. We know what's going to happen. But think about it. If one of the other views is what Paul meant, oh, hey, don't be bummed Fred's going to miss the rapture because that's not going to happen until we go through seven years of tribulation and the Antichrist persecutes the church. On and, Well, that's not comforting. Oh, be glad he's gone. He missed it. Well, all the views are some extent the same way. Hey, they missed out. It wouldn't be, hey, too bad he missed it. It would be, thank God he missed it. So only pre-wrath fits that. For example, Scripture's telling us that we as believers don't go through the wrath of God uh, or the day of the Lord. That's why it's comforting with the words. For example, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for his, re- for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 9, which we'll be getting into this next time. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So we're saying that fits best with the imminent return and comfort. Third, unlike post-trib, pre-trib has the rapture taking us to a place prepared for us. I already explained that. He's coming to get us to take us somewhere, not to just bring us right back. So that fits also. Fourth, it makes the most sense of Israel and the church. And you have to know a little bit more about Old Testament prophecy to fully understand this, although some of you have been around to hear some of that. Again, Daniel, when he gave his prophecy, is just one prophet in the Old Testament. He lays out this timeline, and it's for these 70 weeks. But here's what he says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Here's what Daniel was told in a vision that he's recording for us. 70 weeks, 70 seven-year periods, we think 69 of them have come and gone, then the Messiah was cut off, is what Daniel said was going to happen. At 69 weeks, the Messiah is coming and he will be cut off. That exact thing happened. He came and that week he was crucified. But here's what he says, Daniel 9, 24a. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. What's he saying here? There's 70 seven-year periods that are all about your people, Israel, the Jewish people, and your city, Jerusalem. That's what it's all about. So with that, it makes sense, and that's what the prophets kept seeing. But they were prophesying about the, the Jewish nation, Israel. They were prophesying about their capital, Jerusalem. So they didn't see this segment of time that we refer to as the church age. So it only makes sense when we go back to that 70th week that it's all about the Jewish people and their holy city, Jerusalem. And that's exactly how it is. And we'll be talking about that next week. So that best fits. And then fifth, it's the best fit with the book of Revelation. The, Re the book of Revelation is kind of hard, but it's actually, what's cool about Revelation is actually laid out in a chronological order. For example, in Revelation, the first three chapters, Revelation chapter 1 through chapter 3, the church is on earth. In chapter 4 and 5, the church is suddenly up in heaven, which we would believe that signifies the rapture. In chapters 6 through 19, it's all about the judgment being given to the earth through the tribulation time. At, at the end of 19, then Jesus comes back. And then he comes back to reign for a thousand years. But that's not the end. And then there's a new heaven and new earth at the end of Revelation. So when you put that all in, it's a timeline and it all fits. And that be fits best with the pre-tribulational rapture if you want to follow this. So let's set the, all that aside because it got a little technical there. And let's just say this. Why is Paul telling us this? Why is Paul giving us this information? Well, he lets us know that. There's a, three reasons right off the top here. First of all, he's telling us this so that we will live with confidence. How do we live in confidence? Because we know the end. 
No matter what happens, no matter what we go through, no matter how much the world changes, no matter how much we're going, what is going on, the world's kind of turned upside down in this area or that area or whatever. No matter what we experience, we're going, hey, we can live in confidence. We know how it ends. And we know that God is in control. No matter what happens, we know God is in control. Second reason, so we'll be comforted. Why do we need comfort? Because our friends, our relatives, our people that we know and care about die. If they're in Christ and we're in Christ, we could be comforted because we're separated, but it's just temporary. That we'll be in heaven. They're going to be in heaven too. They're in heaven now. But we'll all be in heaven. Not only that, in the future, we'll all have these glorified immortal bodies. That's a promise to us. So we're comforted in that way. We, we know our loved ones are with Jesus now, and we know we'll all be there in the future if we're Christians. And then third reason is so we live in res- readiness. The whole point of all this is Paul's saying, hey, we should be living in a way that honors God. We should be living with a bigger picture in mind. We should not be just living for ourselves. We should be living for a greater purpose to know that God's redemptive plan for humanity is unfolding in history, and we here now, we have a part to play in that. We do. Because it's only this life that somebody can come to Christ. And so it's our job to tell other people. It's our job to gather as a church. It's our job to proclaim his coming. It's our job to witness to other people to share our faith with them, point them to Jesus. The church is the hope of the world. Today, we have a job to do. So there's no sign that has to happen before the first phase of his second coming that we call the rapture. And we don't know when, but here's what we do know. Every tick of the clock brings us closer to that day. And we also know that we have work to do. We have this message that Jesus died for the world that we want to proclaim, and we only have this life to share it. Now, what's going to happen in the future is one day the rapture is going to happen, and millions of people on earth are going to disappear from the earth. When that happens, that's going to cause a crisis. That's going to cause chaos because there are Christians in every country of the world. The gospel, which is actually one of the signs of his return, is that the gospel will be preached in every nation, and that's already happened. People from every nation will be gone. That's gonna create chaos. Here's, if you, if you never knew this, you'll know this from the last couple of years. Politicians never waste a crisis, right? So if there's a crisis, there are always political people who want more power that take advantage of that crisis. We'll hear what we know is going to happen. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks. But what we know is going to happen is there's going to be a crisis because a bunch of people are gone and people will have questions. They'll want to know what's going on. At the same time that's happening, a world leader emerges. And people start turning to him for answers. 
Now, in the past, we never understood how that could have happened. Think a few hundred years ago, for example, sailing ships. How do you unite the world? You know, there's so it takes it take a year to get a letter to Britain, you know, from California. How, how's that happening? Well, now we see as the world comes together through communication, that can happen very easily. And it's going to happen. God's telling us it's going to happen. So sometimes I would like to think, well, the great thing is if that ever happens, and say tomorrow we're all out of here, some people who are not believers will think, hey, I just got a thing in the mail, or I saw something on Facebook. That church over on Smith Road in Fremont, they were talking about this stuff, and they're gone. Let's go hear what that guy said. And then they'll go on to the computer. And, and I always thought that's the way it would be. But you're right. Now I'm like, no, that ain't going to happen, is it? That's going to be scrubbed, right? Because we have people censoring stuff all the time. That will be gone if somebody wants it gone. And they're powerful enough to make that happen. And that coming world ruler will be that powerful. So the other thing is surprisingly, during this seven-year period, there are Christians on earth. Whoa, whoa, I thought you said that all the Christians are taken out right before that. That's true. I said that. But there will be an evangelistic movement that happens centered in Israel. Again, all the focus comes back to Israel. That's going to happen. And there are going to be believers and they're going to be persecuted. And all that's going to happen. We're going to talk more about that next week. And then there's the day of the Lord. That's what we call these seven years. What is the day of the Lord? What happens during the seven years of tribulation? And then, hold it, it's been 2,000 years. What's God waiting for? I'll tell you next week, because God tells us what. God actually answers that question for us. So, hey, come back as we continue seeing how everything's unfolding fits with biblical pro prophecy. Let's stand, and we'll pray before our team comes out and leads us in one final song. Father God, we thank you. Lord, thank you for the comfort that you give us so when we lose somebody that we love, if they're in Christ, it's not over. If we're believers too. God, thank you for that comfort, that truth. Lord, it means so much to us as we lose people who are dear to our hearts. Thank you. And Father, I pray that you would equip us to share your message with other people. And Lord, we know even in this room right now, there are some that don't know you. Father, we pray that your spirit would, would sort of knock on their heart, that you would pull them, reveal yourself to them, help them to see, draw them to yourself. Lord, if they have questions, that they would get those questions answered, even here, even with us. That they would find those answers from you. And Father, help us to live beyond ourselves for a greater purpose that you've put us here for. Help us to accomplish your will in Christ's name. Amen.